Let us pray. Father God, before we come before your word, we come to you. And we ask that you might be present, that you might abide with us, might allow us to hear with a still small voice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. At the end of our passage last week, we saw Moses learn an important truth about the life of faith. He had finally come to realize that his going forth wasn't so much about his limitations, his imperfections, his even the fact of his genealogy or anything else. That, that wasn't why God was calling him, but God was actually calling him because through Moses going, Pharaoh, the people of Egypt, and the Hebrew people, that all of them would see more of God through his work. He could see that uncleanness. He was given eyes of faith, and the Lord made clear to him, Moses, the purpose of you going before Pharaoh is not so that Pharaoh can see you, but so that Pharaoh can see me. That you will be like, as verse 1 said in this chapter of se- chapter 7, like God to him. And now we pick up where we left off. Moses, with these new eyes of faith, and Aaron... Uh, they will be faithful to this call of God through at least the time period of them going to the Red Sea, though there'll be bitter moments ahead after that. But I think it's important for us to consider what actually is taking place here as Moses sees with these new eyes of faithfulness. See, often we're kind of held captive to the order of the stories in our Bible. But understand this, that the text has already given us enough of an understanding to know that Moses' faith was incredibly primitive at the time the Lord came to him. He did not even know the name of the Lord. And so what? why I want to bring this out is think now of what Moses is about to experience. I actually think a lot of what Moses is about to experience is a lot like people are experiencing who are coming to faith in our own day and age. Before Moses would ever, through the power of God, be able to write in poetic form the grandeur and glory of God's creation, In Genesis 1, he experienced this moment of watching a society deconstruct or be decreated or devolve into utter godless rebellion. And this is why this truth can connect to our own day. And and this actually is why I am going to do something Uh, throughout the plagues, if I remember, 
uh, to occasionally read from Genesis chapter 1 as we go through these plagues. Because the purpose of God's judgment is, is so that people might come to him, to worship him, but also, as we even read at the end of the Pew Bible this morning, to create something new, to create something beautiful. God actually wants to destroy things in judgment so that better things might follow. And so we're going we're gonna to see that. And so Moses would have seen this week's worth of days of plagues and it takes longer than a week, but a week's worth of day of plagues go before him. And this would have been the first thing he ever saw in his faith. And what do you immediately think I just misspoke in saying? Days worth, a week's worth of plagues, right? How many plagues are there? Come on, folks. How many plagues? Ten. Did I misspeak? No. Ancient Egypt actually had ten days. They had weeks of 10 days. This will be 10 days of chaotic judgment spaced over a period of time by their wisdom, by their principles. By the way, a country we'll be talking about later tonight in the nighttime study, France, and the French Revolution tried to make the week 10 days long. But in the 10 days of judgment, we will see disorder, we will see chaos, but there's a greater truth in that the God of seven days is breaking in. The God of orderly restoration is breaking in. The God who created this world to be a better place than this world often in is breaking in. And here, as, as Moses and Aaron approach Pharaoh with the first miracle, but not the first plague, the serpent staff, we have this reality where I lost my train of thought. Got to go to the notes. We have this reality where, oh yeah, Pharaoh asks for a sign. He asks for evidence. And we've probably heard this before. Often people ask for evidence. They believe that evidence will, will uh, they pretend that evidence will convince them. Let me tell you something. When you walked in here from the parking lot, as you sit there in the pews, you have evidences all around you of the reality of God. This is what the Bible references as the general kind of revelation that, that creation itself testifies, that everyone deep down inside knows that the universe did not come from nothing. And so Pharaoh's going to ask for a miracle. And, and, and the thing is, God's going to provide him a miracle. God's going to provide him evidences. And then every time, God's going to give the opportunity. That there's going to be a moment before the next miraculous plague ensues where Pharaoh could be shown to essentially uh, be converted. You know, stop this all. Put an end to it. And every time he will resist. Every time he will resist. 
in the three mir- miraculous moments, and two of which are plagues that we're going to look at today, um, we'll see this. We'll see this reality. Now, also, why the serpent? Why start with the serpent? You can actually see this on the cover of your bulletin. The, the Pharaoh wore a serpent hat. He was actually, uh, it was seen as his power and authority. And, and actually, even the vow before he wore that crown for the first time that he needed to recite was a little bit like this vow. What vow am I reciting citing here? If I said, I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States, and I will do so to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, what vow am I reciting? The presidential vow. Do you know the vow that Pharaoh had to recite? This is the vow. We're going to hear from the vow. Before he put that crown, that serpent crown on for the first time, Because Moses is before this great nation, this great nation of philosophy, this great nation of wisdom, so much so that over a thousand years, basically, after the time of Moses, when Socrates, when Aristotle, when Plato talk about philosophy, they say that Egypt is the father of philosophy. And even Socrates gets mad. He goes, those Egyptians in their writings, they wrote down all this philosophy and people don't have to memorize it anymore. thought about the internet with that. People don't have to memorize it anymore. Great works of classics and antiquity. But this was Pharaoh's vow that he made, word for word. O red crown, O new, O great one, O magician, O fiery snake, let there be tear of me. Like, let, like the terror of thee. Let there be fear of me, like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me, like the awe of thee. Let me rule a leader of the living. Let me be powerful, a leader of the spirits. And so here is Moses before this unholy, serpent-headed figure who takes unholy, demonic vows to forces of evil. And the Pharaoh suggests that he wants to put the Lord God to the test. And And of course... So when he puts the Lord God to the test, Mount Moses turns the staff into a serpent. And great, right? This man now believes, right? No. No, because that's not the miracle that can save. Salvation comes from a changed heart provided by God. That gives us ears to hear. That gives us eyes to see. There's, unfortunately, and, I, and if I... I wish this was the case. There's no silver bullet of combination of words of human power that can be said in order to save someone. There is a kind of miracle that 
that takes the work of Christ, that takes the power of the Spirit. And so Pharaoh sees this miracle play out before him, and he's unimpressed. He's a man who suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. And he calls out his own wise men and sorcerers. This is the first of three times the wise men and sorcerers are going to be able to uh, somehow... Some people want to have naturalistic explanations of this. Some people want to say miraculous in this. I tend to lean towards the miraculous. But they will mimic these first three plagues. But actually, in their mimicking of them, all they do, they can't stop them. They just make them more impactful. They actually make them worse in one sense. And so God has his two men, and Aaron and Moses, and they are before Pharaoh. And actually in 2 Timothy chapter 3, there we find out later as New Testament readers, there are two others, two men of Pharaoh, two magicians, Janus and Jambres, to counter them. And why I think it's important to, to not try to just naturalistically, and there are ways, you, you can put us, a, a snake charmer can put a snake into a, a comatose state that makes them like a staff. And there's, there's ways to make things happen. But we have to understand the whole world is under the power of the evil one, as Scripture tells us. And so where better to be at this moment than Satan being a part of this battle. And so I think when it comes to this story, and actually as Moses will later write those first three chapters of Genesis, he will pick up on words from this devastation that there is something spiritual going on here too. And so the serpent staff, the other staffs are dropped and they become serpents too. And yet they have no power over the power of God. And so the serpent of the Lord swallows up the others in judgment. And Pharaoh becomes the example of the unbeliever who asks for proof and sees God do amazing things and then just carries on unchanged. And the same is true for our world. And so, we now reach the first plague. And when we do so, let's first read from God's orderly creation. Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God, God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Every plague in Egypt will have a day of connect, creation connected to it, and it won't be in order, and it shouldn't be in order, because the days of Egypt are wicked and chaotic and evil, and so God will, in judging that nation, better order it and set it to order. And the first plague is the plague of the Nile turning to blood. The one who controls the water truly controls all things, and Pharaoh would, is, has no power like the God of the, the universe. 
you could teach a year's worth of Sunday school lessons on the imagery of water in the Bible, and quite a few of them would be on something we've already talked about several times about the Nile itself, that it was the greatest of all rivers for any civilization. It built truly helped build an empire, this great empire of Egypt. You, you would never need to open up the Bible to know that's true, and yet here Moses, through the power of the Lord, uh, will turn the Nile River into blood. And when it came to the plague of the Nile's blood, Moses was told to meet Pharaoh as Pharaoh went down to the water for a bath. And it's interesting when you read these verses, because actually all throughout the plague, you're going to see moments where the staff is called Aaron's staff. You're going to see moments where the, the staff towards the end is called Moses' staff. And you'll see uh, in this plague, this first plague of the Nile blood, it being called the Lord's staff. And it's like Moses wants you to ask, who's doing this? Who's the one actually, who's the power behind it? But actually in this first plague, we see the heart of who is doing it. We see both in verse 17 and verse 25 uh, on the three verses that deal with the striking of the Nile that the Lord does it. And yet in verse 20 in the middle, we see that Aaron's the one striking the staff. And so who's actually the one striking the staff? It's ultimately the Lord, and yet also this teaches us an important reality of being God's instruments. When we are wrapped in sin, when we give ourselves over, hand ourselves over to wickedness, we are missing a greater opportunity in being instruments of righteousness. And our world, because our world sits in judgment at this moment, it needs us to be refined so that we can be instruments of the Lord as we leave this place, as we go out into the world. You know, I, I know I have a, a lot of things I'll, I'll do or say that can make people angry. And, and maybe you do too. And, and sometimes I, I know I can insert, need to insert my foot and mouth and I say things that are, are worthy of ire and worthy of judgment and worthy of uh, being upset about. And yet, we also need to be careful to understand that sometimes people can get angry See, people can get frustrated when ultimately they just don't like to hear, they don't like to experience, they don't like to know what God is doing in our world, what God's work in our world, that God's purpose in our world, what God has called people to do in our world. And so think about this. Here is the, here is the Nile. It has turned to blood. It continues to extend even into outside the Nile into vessels and to all the things that hold water for the Egyptian. That uh, they can't escape the blood. And it's a blood for seven days. For God's week. It's, God, it's blood of judgment. And the blood kills the fish. It's a reversal of Genesis. It's killing the fish. And then it tells us 
that denial stank and it stinks. And the point I'm getting at is this. This isn't the first time in Exodus somebody or something is called stinky. Actually, the first time is in chapter 5. And the first time is when the Hebrews, which if we remember that word, the Hebrew people were called to be separate and distinct. They accost Moses. They basically are angry with Moses, and they go up to Moses, and they say to Pharaoh, they say to Moses, Moses, you have made us stink before Pharaoh. Here are God's chosen people. And they are more concerned about stinking before the godless and the sinful leaders of the world. Before a serpent-headed tyrant who has put them into slavery. They're more worried about stinking before him than the fact that such a a stance, such a position, stinks before the all-holy God. There's only two kinds of stink in the world. I remember my wife, she had a kind of an adoptive grandfather, the first person to really introduce her to the Lord. And he used to tell her, you stink pretty. You stink pretty. You have two options, folks. You can be here at worship today. You can go out those doors. And you can live in such a way where you don't stink to the world. Because you're covered in the world's aroma. You're more concerned about the world's aroma. Or you can worship the Lord here. And you can go out into the world. And the world's going to think you stink at times. The world's going to think your truth stinks. That your miraculous God stinks. That the miracles of your God of, of rising from the dead. Ah, that stinks. The life that he calls you to, it stinks. The created order that he ordained, that he established us to be in, oh, that stinks. That's embarrassing. And they'll love you. They'll love you for that. And you'll stink before the Lord. You'll stink before the Lord if you succumb, but if you hold to your faith, if you hold fast, if if you grow to understand what we're talking about downstairs, your whole life is to give into the worship to the Lord. That more and more we need to see ourselves being purified by the word of truth through the power of the Spirit that we need these things. Then we can be a holy and pleasing aroma unto the Lord. Both of these plagues will be shown to stink because that's what judgment shows. And so God showed His judgment on Egypt by attacking its idol, by attacking where it felt it was strongest. And there is no doubt No doubt what America's idol is, what we think is our best trait. It's freedom and liberty. Let freedom reign. 
Let freedom reign. And why I can speak so certainly on God judging this nation is that freedom and liberty have gone totally off the deep end. And actually, uh, as has been pointed out by, by many, the church is so ill-prepared to deal with this problem. For instance, Dylan Mavaney now has, he has sponsorships with Nike, sponsorships with Maybelline, and sponsorships with Bud Light, which was a bad beer long before Dylan Mavaney. Um, and all about, oh, his face is on a beer can. How gross is this? You know what's more disturbing? You know what he called for this week? Hasn't lost his sponsors. That just by me saying he's a he, fellow San Diegan to fellow San Diegan, unfortunately, the biological reality that every chromosome in his body testifies of, he says, I should be put in a jail. And you know what? Canada, that's starting to happen. Just saw a Muslim child ripped from his family, reportedly. Because in Germany, because his parents were teaching him homosexuality and transgenderism is not the way to live in this world. Scotland, too. The West. Oh, we, we are the beacon of freedom and liberty. And God is judging it all and destroying it all because we have grossly erred before him. Actually, there's a sad irony even in the God that represents the Nile in Egypt. He was, I've actually seen a depiction of him at the Berlin Museum when I was a teenager. It was a bearded man with a pregnant female's body. That was their sign of fertility. I mean, sign of the life-giving Nile. A pregnant man with a, with a beard. With a preg- I mean, you can almost imagine it with me because I'm fat enough. But um, the reality is the world has long. Nothing's new under the sun, folks. The world has long hated the created order of God. And in chaos, it will deny it. And it stinks before the Lord and God will judge it. God will judge it. Because he's creating us for something better. He's creating us for what we read at the end of our Bible. And so let us stink pretty. And let's go to the last plague that we'll look at this morning. But before we do so, let's read from Genesis chapter 1, verse 20 through 23. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning on the fifth day. And so now the bloodstained waters, they 
they, they revert back, they change back after a week through God's staff. And now from the blood, bloodied waters, now frogs emerge. I had to call my parents. And we just had a good laugh uh, this week. Uh, because immediately when I thought of this plague of frogs everywhere, I thought of a vacation we had. You see, I can sum up my childhood in the fact that about 80% of my vacations in life were either at Lake Tahoe, which I know I use as an illustration far too much, or Hawaii. My mom, being a travel agent, always was looking for a deal, but also my dad was stationed at Pearl Harbor for a long, long time in his military career, and uh, he was a naval reservist, so he only had to fly out once a month. My sister, all through my high school years, was stationed out there with her family, and so I've been to Hawaii a lot. And Hawaii has always been wonderful, except for one time. We got to the Big Island. We were staying in Kona, and my dad rented a, a like a house for us. It was Airbnb before Airbnb, and we got there. And the place was flooded with vermin. We had cockroaches. We had rats. We had mice. And they were all visual in the house. And actually, my brother and my dad struck a, uh, and I'm sorry, Heather, and I'm sorry, Kathy Kirk, uh, they struck an, an unholy agreement. They brought my brother one of those fishing spears. But not for fishing. <laughs> First, he could not use it for fishing, but he had to be on the hunt. And he had to use the spear in order to clear out the vermin. And so he got quite a few. <laughs> but what do you do when you're staying like in a place like that? You get out of the house, right? And so we go, we go, we're in Kona, and we're at that majestic spot where you can see lava blowing into the ocean. And it's just, it's this unique visual, this unique beauty to it, this unique just grandeur of creation in this moment. And then the sun starts to set. And all of a sudden, all of us in flip-flops by the thousands, cockroaches come out. And we have a hike to the car. And cockroaches are walking up our legs. And every time we step, we hear crunch, crunch, crunch. By the time we get to the parking lot, we decide to run down the white lines of the parking lot so we can at least see in the darkness if there's a cockroach that we're about to step on. It was horrifying. It was also funny in hindsight, and hence we laughed. But it was just everywhere we stepped was cockroaches, cockroaches running up your legs, cockroaches everywhere. It was just the most miserable trip to Hawaii. <laughs> There's an irony here with Egypt's plague with the frogs. They believed the frogs were the gift of fertility. To, to step on a frog, to kill a frog, would doom your family, doom your household to lack of fertility, to lack of um, prosperousness. Uh, you know, what would be our, our nation's frogs today? Maybe our financial wealth. 
our ability to, to have so many goods. I mean, those are our frogs, our, our, our bank accounts. Well, God allows the fro- frogs to inundate them. And Pharaoh makes his first lying promise in, in encountering all these frogs. He asks Moses and Aaron to put it to an end. And so Moses and Aaron uh, beseech the Lord in prayer, and it's put to end the very next day. All the frogs die that are outside the Nile. And then what do you do with the frogs? The frogs that you would have avoided for days stepping on because you didn't want to kill them. The sad irony of their worry about the fertility, the worry about their households, that they killed a frog. We know how the plagues end with God taking the first fruits of households that would not submit to him. And they just heap these frogs into piles. Massive piles. I pictured the before uh, the end of German World War where people had to have wheelbarrows in Germany in order to buy a loaf of bread. Impoverished. And what did the piles do? The piles did what all sin does before the Lord. It stinks. It stank. In judgment. And so, we come here to worship today. We've seen the powerful hand of God in judgment today. And we've seen that this hard-headed Pharaoh is a fulfillment of what Isaiah would later prophesy in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And he said, go and say to these, this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. What aroma have you been covered in as you leave this place of worship? Week in and week out. Seven days and seven days. There is an aroma that the world will never point out. It will never say it stinks before you. But it is very displeasing before the Lord. But there is another kind of aroma. And that aroma is the pleasing sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The judgment that was poured upon Him. The blood that covers everyone who believes on Him in faith. And that's the judgment we need, Christians. That we need to trust in in our current day. As we see this nation be judged, that's the judgment we have to place our hope in. Because through the judgment of Christ, we have a great promise. And our great promise is that a new Jerusalem is coming. A new creation is coming. A greater order is coming. One day sin will be no more. One day sin will be fully judged. 
forever. One day there will be no more chaos. There will be no more rebellion. There will be no more who defy God in this way. And that's the Christian hope. And that's what we place our own hope in when we realize the sad reality that we did deserve judgment in our own sins. We are just as guilty as the Egyptians, and yet He was our sacrifice, our spotless lamb. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank You for this Word. It's a hard word. It's hard to see judgment what Moses first saw as he came to a greater understanding of what faith looks like. A faith that doesn't trust in himself or ourselves, but a faith that trusts in you to see it through. And so as we eagerly wait for the day of ultimate completion, Lord, as we see judgment in our own day, help us as we go forth from this place to have a pleasing aroma unto the Lord. Help us to take courage to stand fast. And Lord, continue to be merciful and patient with us when we fail and we forget. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let us take a moment to quietly and privately confess our sins before the Lord.